Our first reading comes from the uh, book of 1 Samuel, reading from verses 1 to 8. 1 Samuel, chapter 1, and reading verses 1 to 8. There was a certain man from Ramathame, a Zuthite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, one was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrificed to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? This is the word of the Lord. So please have a look with me at uh, 1 Samuel. I'll be reading on from our reading before. So that will be chapter, sorry, chapter 1 and verse 9 and reading through to verse 18. Let's hear from God's word. Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the Lord of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And she said, May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Friends, as we take a closer look at God's word, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we... We can't understand anything of your word without your help, without your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would open our hearts and illuminate our minds so that we might understand your wonderful word and also apply it. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 
Well, friends, one of the challenges for a minister of a church every year is, is where do you uh, take your congregation in the Bible the week after Easter? How do you follow up those three days where you and the collective Christian world remember Jesus' death for us on the Friday and then his miraculous, life-changing, eternity-changing resurrection on Sunday? One option, of course, would be to go straight to the book of Acts and follow what happened next, how Jesus' great commission began to be fulfilled as the gospel went out from Jerusalem to Samaria and beyond. Another good option would be to see how that big promise that Jesus gave Caiaphas at his trial that they'll meet again plays out in the book of Revelation. A less obvious option, it would seem, would be to go from the triumph of the empty tomb and then travel back, back roughly a thousand years and land somewhere in the hill country of Ephraim, i.e. the the dusty boondocks of northern Israel. But as you heard from our reading before, that's exactly where we're going. So why are we going there? Well, friends, to use an analogy If we think of Jesus' pronouncement at the end of Matthew's gospel to go make disciples, go tell the world that he is the risen king, if we think of this great commission like the heads of a mighty river flowing out to the sea of the world, then that obscure spot on the hills of Ephraim a thousand years earlier marks the beginning point of that great river. The great promise that a Messiah, a saving king, will come in the line of David to reign and rule the earth, that promise, friends, finds its starting point right here in this book. And so from the heads of that mighty river flowing out to the world, we are now going to travel back to see how it began to flow. And so our writer begins, verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramathame, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, down to verse 2. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Now, friends, before we go any further, verse 2 gives us a pretty clear heads up, doesn't it, that this little tributary is going to be troubled waters. But this family's struggles are not unique to them. Have a look at verse 3. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Now, friends, when you read that, you might think, okay, Pete, what's, what's the wider struggle here? Not seeing it. Well, friends, have another look at where Elkanah is worshipping. He's not going up to Jerusalem, is he? But this place called Shiloh. Okay, so he's worshipping at Shiloh. What, what does that tell us? Well, friends, if you were here last year, when we went through the book of Numbers, you'll remember that Israel built a portable place of worship called the Tabernacle. And when they finally entered the promised land, 
Joshua, their leader, set up the tabernacle at Shiloh. If you're taking notes, jot down Joshua chapter 18. Now fast forward to the next book in your Bible, the book of Judges, and you'll see in the final chapter the tabernacle hasn't moved. It's still there. Now this tells us Shiloh has been Israel's centre of worship for roughly 400 years. But friends, when you read through that final chapter of Judges, you see a lot has changed in that 400 years. Indeed, by the end of Judges, Israel's worship at Shiloh looks more like the red light district at King's Cross rather than a church, if you get my drift. As such... The writer of Judges gives this summary at the end of his book. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Now, what does that ending have to do with the start of 1 Samuel? Well, friends, that little comment about Shiloh in verse 3 connects the two books. Yes, Ruth is sandwiched in between, but 1 Samuel picks up where Judges leaves off. And so having read verse 3, we now know the broader context. Israel is in complete disarray, basically devolving into anarchy. They need leadership. They need a leader and they need him right now. So could this man Elkanah, who we are now introduced to, be that leader for Israel? Well, let's have a look at the family at which he is the spiritual head. How's he going at leading them? Well, having married his first wife, Hannah, they discover they can't have kids together. So how is Elkanah going to respond to this? Does he stick by his beloved wife? And share this pain with her? Pray with her that God might in time turn this situation around? Well, no, he doesn't, does he? No, just like the rest of Israel, Elkanah does as he sees fit. No children? No problem. I'll just marry again. And so rather than sharing and carrying this tough burden with his wife as he ought, rather than even thinking of bringing this struggle of theirs to God and seeking an answer, Elkanah provides the answer. Does a workaround that he might secure the blessing he thinks he deserves. But just like the rest of Israel, the blessing Elkanah expects doesn't eventuate. No, the moment Elkanah invites Peninnah into his home, he invites a dark, ever-present cloud of discontent and deep, deep sadness. A sadness and a misery the writer makes sure we do not miss. Pick it up from verse 6. 
Because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? There, there, Hannah. Yes, I abandoned you for another. And now she constantly mocks you under your own roof. And sure, when you go to worship to find some peace in this situation, she makes doubly sure you don't get it. But hey, cheer up. Aren't I worth more to you than ten sons? And friends, with that encouragement, with that response to his family's situation, we see clearly the leader Israel needs, the leader who is going to to step up and sort out Israel's dire predicament is certainly not Elkanah. Leaving aside him and Israel's predicament for a moment, how is Hannah, how is she going to handle, how is she going to respond to her predicament? The horrendous existence she has to endure day in and day out. Clearly there are only two options, isn't there? Do what the rest of Israel have already done and grow hard toward God. And so do as she sees fit and hate on Elkanah and everyone living living under his miserable roof. Or refuse that well-trodden path, soften your heart and plead with God to consider your terrible situation that he might somehow use it for good and then... Rest on that. Now we both know the easier of those two options, don't we? We know in our own lives how we've sometimes reacted, how we've sometimes cursed even when things don't quite pan out the way we want, the way we expect. So what about Hannah? How is she going to respond to an entire life that hasn't panned out the way she expected, the way she had hoped? Well, let's see, verse 9. Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And so Hannah doesn't do like the rest of Israel. Hannah doesn't do as she sees fit, but goes to God. And before we see and have a closer look at what she says to God, have a look at how Eli the priest intercedes for her. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk 
and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but I would have thought a layman, indeed any Joe Blow on the street, would be able to tell the difference between a person who is drunk and someone who in tears and grief is pouring out a heartfelt prayer to God. Not hard to pick. But it turns out Israel's number one head priest can't pick the difference. Hasn't got a clue. And friends, the reason I suspect he doesn't have a clue is because Hannah's deep, heartfelt approach is something Eli has never seen. For Israel, while all good with the outward shows of worship, have walked away from inward worship of God. And so when Eli sees this, it's so foreign to him, he concludes she must be sozzled. And so this priest, rather than doing his priestly duty for Hannah, praying for her, interceding for her, tells her to get out. And friends, before we look at how Hannah graciously responds to this total misread. There's two quick things I want to say as we consider this moment. And the first one is this. Is this sort of prayer that was alien to Ilkanah, alien to Eli, alien to Israel, alien to you? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not asking, does every prayer you pray resemble Hannah's right here? But what I am asking is, do you like Hannah pray with a soft heart? An honest and open heart? Or do we, as Isaiah will later say of Israel, honour God with our lips, but with hearts far from him? Prayers that are heard and received by God are prayers that are spoken not by the lips, but by the heart, with the heart, from the heart. But how can I be sure these prayers are getting through? Well, friends, because the high priest that intercedes for us is not Eli. But Jesus Christ. Listen to these wonderful words of assurance about his priestly ministry in Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Now, friends, don't miss that. Jesus was tempted in every way, and so he can perfectly relate to us. But as a priest without sin, he has perfect access to the Father. And so as we pray to the Father in Jesus' name, we do so with full confidence that we are heard. Listen to the writer to the Hebrews as he continues. Therefore, Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In other words, friends, when we pray, we have a high priest who never, ever misreads, misunderstands or dismisses even the smallest heartfelt prayer to God. But as we see, the very opposite is going on here. Eli intercedes all right, but only to show her the door. And so Hannah puts him straight. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And with that assurance, let's go back to her prayer because we are given the heart of her prayer, aren't we, in verse 11. O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, And not forget your servant, but give her a son. Now friends, so far this deep, heartfelt prayer is pretty normal. It's pretty relatable, isn't it? But Hannah's not finished yet. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. In other words, this isn't a plea that Hannah might finally have a child of her own under her roof, but that through her, God might have a child as his own under his roof. In other words, living with Eli at Shiloh. Now, why would she pray that? To finally have a child only to give him away. Has Hannah been drinking too much after all? Well, no, she hasn't. So what then? Well, friends, let's join some dots here. Hannah can see that her misery ultimately stems from Israel's ministry. Misery, sorry ultimately stems from that final statement in Judges. Her people are going down the tubes because Israel has no leader. And so she prays for a child, not for her own good, but that God might have a child and use this child for Israel's good. For God to mould this one into a leader who won't be like Elkanah and all the rest. And friends, if you're thinking, Pete, you know, you're drawing a little bit bit of a long bow here. Well, let's quickly follow what happens next. Hannah immediately falls pregnant. Once the baby is born, she names him Samuel, a name she specifically chooses to acknowledge he is a direct result of that prayer, verse 20. As such, she then informs Elkanah, verse 22, as soon as Samuel is weaned, she will present him before the Lord and he will live there always. 
And friends, she doesn't deviate from this commitment one iota. As soon as Samuel is off mother's milk, she takes him straight to Shiloh and hands him over to Eli. And having left her precious little one with him, she prays. She prays again. And friends, I encourage you to have a look at this prayer later on. Because as she returns to that home childless once more, her words are not a mix of fear and regret and heartache, as you'd expect, but joy, optimism and confidence. Because she is convinced God will use Samuel to solve Israel's leadership problem. Her prayer closing with this, have a listen. God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. A king is now on the way. And this little child, somehow, some way, is going to be involved in his appearing. And friends, that's where we leave 1 Samuel for this week. But as we do, it's important to ask, how does this ancient, miraculous story speak to us today? How do we relate to it? How do we apply it? Well, as, I, as we think about this, I think a good place to start is to rule a certain application out. And that is to look upon Hannah, her prayer and God's answer to it, and say to ourselves, right, this passage is telling me if I want direct answers to my prayers, I need to be more like Hannah. Pray like her with a believing faith like hers. But why would that be such a mistake? Didn't we just say before we need to pray with a similar depth of faith? Yes, we did. And didn't we say before we should lay bare our hearts before God in the same manner that Hannah does? Yes, we did. And also we now have confidence because Jesus is our high priest, we will surely be heard. We saw that too. So what's the problem then? Well, friends, the problem or the issue is this. When our life hits a roadblock, much smaller than Hannah's, our prayers very much look like the first half of her prayer, but rarely the second half. Hannah prayed earnestly for a child that she might give him away that God might take him and use him for his glory, for the good of his people. That, friends, is an extraordinary prayer. And what it reveals is a heart and will that is utterly sold out to God's heart and God's will. And once we get that, see that, and are sold on that, then we are ready to make Hannah's prayer life a model for our own. 
It's easy to pray and plead a little bit longer, a little bit harder for the things we desire, for outcomes that will help us have our best life now. But to pray sacrificially, seeking the growth and good of God's kingdom at the expense of our little kingdom, well, that's another thing entirely. But friends, that's exactly what's going on here. How could Hannah pray like that? Because, friends, she knew that her happiness and joy and contentment wasn't ultimately found in building her little kingdom, but in God building and working out his And so she prayed that extraordinary prayer, gobbledygook to Eli, but not to God, not to the one who uses the weak things of this world to shame the strong. And so to this weak, powerless nobody, an answer is given, an answer that begins to turn Israel's sinking ship around. An answer that will in time see a leader, a king, called David, come to the throne. A king who will be the great-grandfather of another king, a forever king. And so, friends, we see why this book takes us to that obscure spot in the hill country of Ephraim. No king, everybody doing as they see fit. Everyone, that is, except Hannah, who instead prayed that God would do as he saw fit through her. A heartfelt plea that God acted upon in a mighty, mighty way, such that a king in the line of David called Jesus now reigns. The question is, As we consider this book, are we invested in his kingdom or our own? Are we praying like Israel, like Elkanah? My kingdom come, my will be done. Or like Hannah, your kingdom come, your will be done. Friends, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.